It's been a year of expansion and deepening at the On Being Project, and I am so excited to announce the launch of a whole new gathering space and experience at onbeing.org. With the care and creativity of many, we've fashioned a digital home that is newly beautiful and hospitable. It's designed for all the ways we've heard you tell us you use our work, for personal reflection and respite, for conversation in family and community, for teaching and social repair. There are starting points into our 15-year archive of material. There are libraries for browsing or diving deep. The Civil Conversations Project has a robust, integrated presence, and poetry is present along just about every pathway. Please wander in to the new onbeing.org. And once you've had a chance to explore, let us know what you think, what works, what you'd like more of. You can reach us on our social media channels or email us at mail at onbeing.org. We look forward to inhabiting this space with you. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being's Unheard Cuts. Up next, my unedited conversation with Maria Popova of Brain Pickings. There is a shorter produced version of this wherever you like to listen. Say hello. Hey, Krista. Hi, Maria. Oh, there you are. Yeah, you sound like you're in the shower, though. I'm sure Paul can work on that. I do. You know, I was once made to eat an apple before a radio interview because apparently there's something wrong with my voice. So yeah, it sounds like voice, the control room mic is open or something. We're getting a lot of yeah. Oh, what happened? Now it's better, right? Okay, is your voice is out? your voice is perfect. <coughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's real. No, do you know? Um, the hardest thing with a voice is to just sound like yourself, and uh, that's the best advice I got. And it took me about five years or eight years to start sounding like myself in that narration. Mm. So just sound like yourself, and you'll be brilliant. You got it. <laughs> um, and it, of course, that's a that's a uh, there's an analogy there to life itself, right? <laughs> <laughs> Let's go straight to the Buddhism. That's right. Um, so, so you know what this is? It's a real conversation. I will lead you. We're just going to talk about things that you think and write about all the time. Um, Sounds good. And it doesn't have to be um, linear. If there's something you want to go back to or you want to turn a corner, um, again, we just get to have we get to have a real conversation. Wonderful. Any questions well, I should, for me? I should mention that I listen yeah. to your unedited. I prefer them over the edited. You so do I, really? I know how it goes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, the, here's the thing. I love the cello, so every once in a while I would treat myself to the edited because mm-hmm. of the music. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do love the sort of meandering way that people have of going around their own minds, which, you know. So you know, it took it took. We'll talk about that sometimes. It took two years for Trent to talk me I'm into doing this. Interrupting you for a second, Krista. Yes. You're kind of looking this way. Okay. But I need you to. All right. No, you're seeing. Okay, so I'm, I'm just going to be you feel like picturing you're, Krista in this empty chair and facing yeah. her. All right. Yeah. You got it. I think you're you're just kind of favoring the mic because mm. you think you have to, but when you do that, you're actually looking the wrong way. Sounds have true. you have you done uh, you've done ISDN before? I'm thinking. Have you done this before? 
with he- eyes, Dan, with headphones, just talking oh, to somebody. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, but, okay. Yeah. I think it's but really a different it. style of mic is what I've u- I've usually done. You know, sort oh. of pu- public radio studios, and they have a different different. Oh, setup. okay. Um, I think this is very intimate. I I like it. I um, love it. Yeah. Um, well, I think so. I think we have a hard stop at two. My time three years. So let's delve in. Um, I just okay. So I want to say that I when I when I learned when I really understood that you grew up in Bulgaria, I understood <sighs> you in a new way. What you do, um, hmm. yeah. And so I but and and. Um, and what I mean by that is, uh, you know, I spent quite a, a few years in Berlin when Berlin was divided, and I spent a lot of time in Eastern Europe. I never went to Bulgaria, but that whole, you know, I feel like you have this passionate intellect and, and really this faith in the power of ideas that is somewhat un-American. Do you know what I mean? Hmm. Americans are ambivalent about the life of the mind. Um, and I, I mean, I think there's something in, you know, Bulgaria, I think, that, you know, is East Central Europe. Um, but to me, that really, really comes through. Um, but also, you were born, I mean, you lived through the world changing. You were born in mm. in communist yes. Bulgaria, um, mm-hmm. which then shifted. Um, yeah, I'm very, you know, that was a, a, a very um, kind of aggressively atheist world. Um, was, there a, was there a spiritual background to your childhood, um, you know? In a way well, that you would have defined it as spiritual. Mm. What's interesting is actually that yes, communism sort of took it upon itself to eradicate any trace of religion, and and Bulgaria does have a national faith, I guess, which is Eastern Orthodox Christianity. Right. But you know, half a century of communism did deliberately uh, steer things toward what you called a hard atheism. Except it worked with varying degrees of efficiency, meaning the closer people were, both geographically and um, in terms of affiliation to the party and to its governing bodies, the more unreligious they were. But people in the rural countryside, away from the sort of watchful eye of the government, Mm -hmm. uh, maintained a pretty strong religious tradition. So as far as your question goes, there was no religious background to my childhood, but there was a, an attitude toward religion. And my family was very interesting because my father's side came from a lineage of intellectuals, yeah. and they lived in the city. And my grandfather was a military general, meaning uh, very much aligned with the government. But my mother's family came from a lineage of, I, I guess, peasants, um, my maternal grandparents were both elementary school teachers and lived in the countryside. Now, my parents had me very, very young, and so they both actually went back to school to finish their um, uh, university education, and I was raised primarily by my grandparents. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. And so I had these two grandmothers. One was the hard atheist intellectual, and the other who still to this day says prayers for me every night, you know. <laughs> right. Right. But by and large, my father's side prevailed. So I grew up um, with an attitude toward religion that can best be described as um, a cautious curiosity as a child. Mm-hmm. And then 
befitting the teenager's typical distaste for nuance that evolved into contemptuous curiosity. Mm-hmm. But but what I what I also think was true of that time and those cultures is that that intellectual life um, uh, cultivated. Um, and you know, intellectual life and literature and poetry, reading and writing, not were not taken for granted, and that there mm. there was a sense in which intellectual life was a form of spiritual survival. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And you know, it's interesting. I was recently um, visiting my family and and my grandmother, my father's mother, mm-hmm. who's the atheist intellectual, uh, showed me for the very first time all of these books that her father, my great-grandfather, who died six days before I was born, whom I never met, and he was an astronomer and mathematician, and he taught himself English and German by hacking the radio to tune into the um, <laughs> right. uh, BBC and Deutsche Welle. Yeah. And then he taught my, my dad and my uncle both German and English, uh, but but he had these books which he showed me that he had smuggled from England somehow, and they were first edition Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald, and he had his marginalia were extraordinary, and I and I felt this strange kinship with him through the years, through mm-hmm. the cultures and the eras and these different media. Because what I do when I read is essentially what he did, which is he wrote in the margins all these notes on things that he didn't understand and wanted to understand. He underlined passages that he noted were beautiful language and, and, and words that he didn't know that he would look up in the dictionary. He would circle them and then write the translation. But it was this sort of intellectual dance with another mind that, that you could see in the margins of his books. And I was just very, very mm. moved by it. I, it's kind of, I mean, in a sense what you do with a, on a in a different medium is marginalia and you mm. know with the hyper I mean you you can actually hyperlink something and actually look up that word that you don't know mm-hmm. um, mm. I mean I, I wonder you know someplace you said literature is the original internet and I wonder if yeah. that image of your grandfather is precisely what you're describing Oh yeah yeah definitely and I mean in in a and this, I guess, seeing these books of his added a different uh, layer of understanding to this thing, which I've been saying for a while. And originally, I meant it in the sense of, you know, it, you look at a book, and, and then in it, every footnote and, and allusion and, and reference is essentially a hyperlink yeah. to another work, except it only works backwards. So it only goes back in time, you know. And marginalia or or this sort of, it goes back and forth because Mm. it is the present mind conversing with a past mind. Um, So it's a different kind of hypertext, I guess. Yeah, that's so interesting. Um, You know, you are often referred to, um, you know, as, as one of the many descriptors of what you do as a blogger. But... Um, but you don't really reside online um, in the way I think that word su- might suggest. Um, it, you know, I mean, you do many things. You do many kinds of writing. But I, it seems to me that one of the things you do is you use technology, you use the in- inter- Internet to circulate thinking about old-fashioned reading and writing. Hmm. 
I guess so. And it was not always the case. I hmm. mean, my site is really a record of of my becoming who I am. And I started so early in my 20s. Yeah. I didn't know who I was. I wasn't doing that much reading then. And it eventually became that. And right now, I rarely read the internet at all. And I spend most of my days sort of buried in book piles and letters and diaries and old philosophy books and whatnot. But it's interesting because I think... You know, there's this term that we hear in in kind of new agey circles, uh, spiritual reparenting, which is uh, a, a bit too new agey even for my taste, and I'm I can be quite the hippie sometimes. Um, <laughs> spiritual but, but spiritual repair is what you said. Reparenting. Oh, reparenting. Sort of, yeah, oh, doing, yeah. Okay, spiritual reparenting. Right. Doing okay. the work that your parents didn't yes, do yes, for yes, for yes. your spirit and yes, for your well. character. Um, and and the, but there's an aspect of it that I like, um, and and it led me to think about what I do as a kind of, well, first for myself and maybe as a byproduct for my readers. But it's a kind of two-way generational reparenting, sort of, on the one hand, caring for these bygone thinkers, while at the same time imbuing the present generation with their hand-me-down wisdom and and their most enduring ideas. Hmm. And it's interesting because I was recently um, talking to my friend Andrew, um, Andrew Sullivan. He's a beautiful soul and a journalist of more integrity than probably anybody else I know. And he was lamenting that, uh, you know, here we are with our fetishism of disruption, especially when it comes to media and journalism. And then he said, you know, culture needs stewardship, not disruption. And I was like, yes. But I actually think, yes, we have forsaken stewardship to a large degree, but we need both always to move forward. We need a, a backdrop of stewardship against which the new can be built as a, as a contrast and as an improvement. So the, back to this idea of reparenting, I, I think this cultivation of character uh, for ourselves as individuals and, uh, and, and as a civilization is actually the task of parenting and to some extent maybe of education, uh, which is perhaps why um, for some unbeknownst to me reason, uh, brain picking seems to have a fairly large patronage among um, educators, especially retired educators Hmm. and um, grandparents and people that I hear from. And I think there's something about that reparenting aspect. You know, uh, uh, there's a... There's a real. Um, I, I love that language of stewardship, and I. There's also something about your work that is, and and the I think the the magnetism of your work, the appeal of it for people that it's, it's aspirational, right? I mean, and which is another contrast to disruptive. Um, um, you, you offer modern people who, um, right? We have all these. We have all these assumptions we kind of walk around with and lay them, especially over, you know, the young, the new generations, that there's no place for depth, that we can only take things in bite-sized pieces, that everything has to be entertaining. Mm. And yet you present the this discovery to people that we wanted to know more about big ideas, that we want our brains to be stretched. Um, and it, it, um, 
it's, it's again, it's very, it's it's countercultural, and yet, and and but um, it does it precisely. I think has that effect that Andrew Sullivan is talking about of stewarding kind of, I'd say, our best selves in this moment of you know. So much I mean, information so. and so much change and so much confusion. I hope so. In a way, it's of course as I think, um, and for many of us, I think the work we do is the most aspirational work we do as a hedge against our own worst fears for mm. ourselves. You mm. know, and for me, certainly. I mean, I think as a culture. You, you're right. We we seem somehow bored with thinking. We want to instantly know, right, <laughs> and you know, right, and knowing, right. of course, is the right. cessation of thinking. Because, I mean, you know, there's a, this epidemic of listicles. Why think about what constitutes a great work of art when you can skim the you know, the, the twenty most expensive paintings in history? Right. And I'm very guided by this desire to counter that in myself because I am, like everybody else, a product of my time and my culture. And I remember there's a really beautiful commencement address that um, Adrienne Rich gave in 1977 in which she said that um, an education is not something that you get, but something that you, you claim. And I think that's very much true of knowledge itself. The, the reason we're so increasingly intolerant of of long articles and why we skim them, why we skip forward even in a short video, you know, that reduces a 300-page book into a three-minute animation, even in that we skip forward, is that we've been infected with this kind of pathological impatience that makes us want to have the knowledge, but not to have the work to do the work of, of claiming it. Yeah, and you know, we've turned the phrase uh, lifelong learning, you know, is kind of a catchword, but, mm. but what I think you know, something that's come back at us from the work we do, and I, I've, you know, I think we're in a similar sphere in this way, is people will say, I haven't, I haven't been asked to think about big, hard ideas like that since I was in college. You know, there's a way in which mm. in this culture we do all our thinking while we're in formal, formal educational settings and then move on to the world of work. But it does seem like people, and, and, and in an interesting way for all the the way technology and the internet is fretted over as something that's destroying our attention spans and our imaginations. Um, it does make all this, this learning, this, this, you know, being constantly stretched intellectually and, re, and, and newly educated, it makes that possible in mm. a new way. And in a way also, I mean, learning, I think, is part of it, but much of it is, and, and, and this is what you do so beautifully, this sort of framework of meaning, of sense-making that basically helps us figure out why we're here, you know. And, mm. and, and I think back to this idea of claiming knowledge, I mean, to really do that, it requires that we take all these different um, bits and pieces of information and we um, fuse them into this kind of relational framework that we organize them in a shared mesh of context against which we orient ourselves to the universe and to life. And we need to understand how each bit relates to every other and how the individual parts illuminate one another and, and produce this sort of greater understanding of the whole. And I think knowledge lives in this relational understanding. And the reason why we call disjointed bits of um, kind of encyclopedic information, why we call it trivia, 
I mean, you know, the true material of knowledge is meaning, and the meaningful is the um, opposite of the trivial. And the only thing that we sort of glean by skimming and skipping forward is really trivia. Mm-hmm. And the mm-hmm. only way to glean knowledge is contemplation, and, and, and the road to that is time. There's nothing else. It's just time. There right, is no right. shortcut for the conquest of meaning. And ultimately, you know, it is meaning that we seek to give to our lives. Yeah. I wonder, um, just if you would just, you know, give an example of, I don't know what you've been, you know, maybe something you've been reading or writing today or yesterday where some new connection has been there for you. Just an example of that that's fresh. Hmm. I, um, so I use Thoreau's diaries as a kind of, uh, spiritual text that I <laughs> reread over and over when I need to kind of center, recenter. The Rose Diaries? His, yeah, mm, okay. yeah, his journals, I yeah. guess, because actually uh, in the history of the written word, for some reason, men's diaries are called journals and women's <laughs> diaries are called diaries. Um, <laughs> so right. Thoreau's published writings, private writings, are called his journal. Um in any case, I was reading, there's this beautiful passage where he talks about um, hard work. And he says, basically, that the person who works hard doesn't exert himself all day, but has this leisure around accomplishing the task. And he says, you know, that the hen lays just one egg. And the rest of the time, she goes around and she feeds on things that feed the next egg. But our mythology of hard work, and this is in 1861, you know, today we wear this badge of honor of hard work, of, you know, productivity as as this hallmark of, of purpose. But it's in many ways the opposite, because Thoreau's point was basically that the more we busy ourselves with just the drudgery of work, the more actual work we accomplish. And you had Parker Palmer in the show, who I love him, and um, he said something along the lines about, um, and I guess that's the connection made with the Thoreau's yeah. diary, yeah. that, that the, the more um, efficient our task, the, the smaller things we can imagine in accomplishing. Right. Yeah, <laughs> you're right, exactly. It's, I know. Um, so so another way, um, an important way that your work is described is, uh, is this work of curation, which, mm. which you're also pointing at in the sense of, um, you, know, you know, I think these are some other words of yours, you know, just the difference between information and information that matters. And, but we are, you know, some, somebody's called you, uh, what do they say, in... In the age of information overload, Popova is the ultimate hunter-gatherer curator, which I really like because I, <laughs> I, I like that description because I also think that it, I also think, and I'm not sure if the, if the person who wrote it, you know, meant this, but to me it also illustrates the link that you kind of embody between, you know, what you're doing that is very new but the fact that you're pulling a lot of wisdom that is very old in through these new media and that, in mm. fact, um, all of that helps make us whole. Well, 
you know, over the last few years, and I've been doing this for now, it's going to be, this fall, it's going to be nine years. So over the last few, I've grown increasingly antsy about this word, curator. Yeah. Um, so tell me about I, that. Well, I think it was more true earlier on when a lot of what I was doing was basically saying this, you know, this is interesting. Mm -hmm. But over time, and those are the first, I mean, brain pickings began as a, just a little packet of, of links to interesting things. And then it was a link in a little paragraph about why it's interesting. And then the link became a little article about why it's interesting in relation to everything else. So it went from this to And, and originally this it was goes. something you were circulating, right, in a workplace, right, when you were yes, still yes. studying. Yeah, okay. Mm. Mm -hmm. One of my, one of the jobs I was working to pay my way through school. Yeah. Uh, but in any case, it, it, it went, it, it evolved to be longer and longer and, and more reflective of how I think uh, just the human mind works with the, you know, hyperlinks that we talked about and um, the the sort of more deeper contemplative connective tissue around ideas. And eventually what started out as a link became a link in a paragraph, a link in a 500-word article, and now the average article I do is 2,000 words or, you know, and it's, and I have a hard time thinking of that as curation because I, I think in a way, yes, I mean, a, a museum curator takes all these disparate objects and arranges them in a context that conveys an overall point of view and vision and explains some aspect of the world. And in, in, in that sense, I guess, yes. But then you can also say, well, you know, um, take the average nonfiction book that the author has yeah, absolutely. a few hundred thousand. Well, you're, you know, I mean, you are a writer as well. I, I, I mean, there's no question about that. There's, there's original creation and and thought it's, but I do think that you. I think that this role you have as a curator is also there in the big picture of kind of the sweep of your work. I mean, I mean, you know, oh, you use when you use this word stewardship. You know, I, I like, I love that word. I love some kind of old-fashioned words like edification is mm -hmm. another one I like. And also, what is it? Which one? Edification. You edification. Know. But yeah. also discernment. You know, not just knowledge. And I do think that. Part of what people go to go to brain pickings for is, is uh, you know, d that there will be some discernment there. Again, the distinction between you know, in, is this information or information that matters, mm. and that that's kind of an eye you put on the world and on what you're reading. Well, I try to do that for me. I think it would be pretty, pretty cocky to say that I do that for anybody else, but for myself, I do try to discern, I guess, between information and, and, and wisdom, you know, because yeah, right. ultimately that's what we long for, I think, well, because wisdom is the thing that answers this question of how to live and how to live a, a meaningful life. And for me, that what I do is my private record of, of that, of my tussle with that answer or that um, multitude of plurality of answers, I guess. Mm -hmm. I I do feel that there's a real quality in you um, as a human being, which comes through in your work of, um, and this is how it came to me when I was trying to put it towards, you know, intellectual confidence and generosity. Um, oh, that's such a lovely thing to say. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's, 
you know, I would like for it to be true one day. It's a good thing to <laughs> aspire well, to. It's well, beautiful. let's say, you know, you will, you're, you're, are you 29 or 30 now? You're, are you, I'm 30. You're 30. You've I'll already crossed year, the actually. over. Okay. <laughs> um, but, you know, over you will continue to grow. But th- no, those are definitely qualities. And, and, uh, I I wondered if if you if you think there's you know where that comes from in you is there is there do you if I ask you that you know if I if I use that phrase to describe you know, if I ask you know do you do you think there's a philosophy in you about that hmm. that um, that you know of course you will refine throughout your life. Well, I think identity for all of us is this perpetual process, and it's somewhat like constantly clearing out and rearranging an attic. And a lot of it is about, I mean, it is, it's as much about throwing out all the furniture and trinkets that no longer service as, as bringing in new ones, you know. And, and in that sense, it's just as important to continue defining who we are as to continue eliminating who we are not. And for me, um, it, it kind of feeds on itself, you know, and Brain Pickings is both the record of how that f- inner philosophy has evolved, but it's also been the fuel for it, you mm-hmm. know, and I think that the things that we bring into our lives shape, obviously, shape who we become, but why do we choose to bring those things into our lives? And I, I think that's part of the, I guess, what... Hannah Arendt called the unanswerable questions that mm-hmm. sort of give meaning to life. And so it's a bit of a chicken or egg question. Um, whatever that philosophy is, it's not, I don't think you can be deliberate about uh, shaping your course forward because you then end up somewhere completely stale and expected. Um, so I don't know. I think it's constantly, constantly evolving. Mm-hmm. You- that was a non-answer no, to no. an unanswerable question. Yeah, Absolutely. okay, all right. Well, that's <laughs> de- de- deliberate, um, de- or de- you couldn't. You can't be directive, but you. I mm. mean, you, you can be discerning in terms of, as you say, what the fuel is that you're providing. And well, there are certain core beliefs, I guess. That I, well, okay. Well, let's go with that. I yeah. mean, I, you know, I think a lot about, and this is back to the point of 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 building a hedge against the things that I fear in my own nature and my potential and our potential as a culture and working to have an antidote to that. And I think a lot about this relationship between cynicism and hope. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what you said earlier about people making assumptions about others and, and all of that, I think, you know, critical thinking without hope is cynicism, but hope without critical thinking is naivete. And I try to live in this place between the two to, to try to build a life there, you know, because finding fault and feeling hopeless about improving our situation uh, produces resignation, of which cynicism is a symptom and against which it is this sort of futile self-protection mechanism. Yeah. But on the other hand, believing blindly that everything will work out just fine also produces a kind of resignation because mm. we have no motive to apply ourselves toward making things better. And I think in order to survive both as individuals and as a civilization, but especially in order to thrive, um, we need to bridge critical thinking with hope. A plant 
It needs water in order to survive, and it needs the right amount of water in order to thrive. And when you overwater it, it, it rots with the excess. And when you underwater it, it dries up inside. So if there's any unifying philosophy to what I do, is just this sort of constant act of getting the water just right. <laughs> I like that. You know, and, you know, I'd say in very practical ways, um, a lot of the... the the, what you, what you, what you. Well, let me just go into it this way. I wanted to talk about how you know you've talked about Twitter as part of the discovery economy. Um, mm. I love I love that language and that you actually use Twitter, um, which again many people, especially people who aren't on Twitter, <laughs> demean. <laughs> um, and I did too until I until I tried it. Um, it's like, you know, it's a logical question. What can you accomplish in 140 characters? But it turns out you can accomplish quite a lot um, with the right <laughs> intention. Um, and so, you know, some of the things that you discover, um, and I'll just actually give perspective also that feeds that that life and the tension between cynicism and hope, right? The, um you know, there's just, and this was some. This was something you did in Slate for Slate in Future Tense. You know, these are, for example, two different pieces that you posted there. Oh, One, they, yeah, they reposted things they, that I written. They reposted, um, like, okay, for, for, yeah. So, like, you know, yeah. one of them is uh, a visual time. Uh, the headline is a visual timeline of the future says the world will still exist in the year eight hundred two thousand seven hundred one, and then. Another one nearby, an amazingly timely essay on info overload, open access science, and human filters from 1945. <laughs> so I should say, first of all, that um, I love what Slate is doing. I think they're doing some of the most uh, ambitious journalism online. But I had no say in titling those essays. Oh, you didn't? And okay. They, reti- they republished the okay. substance of what I wrote on Brain Pickings, but they retitled oh, it. That's good to know. Uh, all right. It's not necessarily how I would have titled it. <laughs> okay. uh, uh, but the one, the the second one you referred to is um, Vannevar Bush, um, who wrote this beautiful essay in 1945 called As We May Think. And in it, he basically envisions the internet. He envisions this personal mm, computer called the Memex from Memory and Index. And it's extraordinarily prophetic in, in, in what not just the technology, but the relationships that we'll have with knowledge, with information, with each other. And he talks about this. He said there will be a new, new profession of trailblazers who will... Um, Make a career out of finding useful trails through what he through the common record, and I love this notion of the common record. Yeah, and in a way, so much of what I do is an attempt to make sense of humanity's common record. Right, and and to and to and to me again that 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 nourishes hope. I mean, in in the sense that. Um, well, first of all, with real ideas and real insights and real wisdom, but also with a um, bringing us home to the knowledge that we are not alone with the questions we're pondering or grappling with. Mm, mm. I think that's time. so important too. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, you you really you've become a role model for. Um, a lot of young people looking to entrepreneurial, I would say, to navigate life and life with technology, both entrepreneurially 
and meaningfully. And you wrote this interesting essay about what you'd learned in the first seven years. What did you say? You're now in year nine? Nine. Yeah. Um, And, you know, it's interesting because one of the things that you're very known for, whenever people write about you, they write, they go into great detail about your prodigious workload. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? (laughs) And they'll say... I think it was all, all of that was seeded by a somewhat inaccurate... uh, one one thing that someone wrote. One, one, one rather inaccurate uh, yeah. thing. <laughs> 450 hours of work. just one of them. They all have their variations on this. 450 hours of work each month, hundreds of pieces of read a day, 12 to 15 books a week, uh, three to eight hours writing a day, publishes three hours, tweets four times per hour between 8 a.m. and 11 p.m. I mean, is that all true? Um, some of it has been true at different times. Yeah. The tweeting has sort of uh, slowed down the hours. I think it's actually a gross underestimate. Okay. I, I read and write from the minute I wake up to the moment I go to sleep at night and everything in between, even those, you know, I, I get around on bikes, so I commute and uh, I listen to On Being, I listen to Radio Lab, you know, whatever I listen to, that feeds in, you know, that's part of the, the reading. And so I would say the hours are probably a lot more. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. But it was, I but, mean, but the thing, yeah. but I, I want to say something important mm-hmm. though about that. that mm-hmm. um, even if it's factually true, I think the framing is a little bit misleading because it's framed as a sort of as a productivity thing. I mean, yeah. look at how much. Yeah like some random person in the world gets done, you know? Yeah. And for me, I it, it feels very purposeful. And I think it's not a matter of how much to fill the day with doing, but to, how, how much to fill it with being. And, and it just so happens that w- what I do is very aligned with the way I would like to be and the way I'm being in the world. But it, it's not done out of this sort of compulsive, or I would like to hope that it's not done out of a compulsive productivity thing. Yeah. So I think, in a way, it's not necessarily the healthiest thing to tell young people that this is something they should aspire to if it's framed as, well, you know, in order to be happy, you must read three books a day. and, and Right. It, you know. it's, qual- it's all describing it in terms of numbers, which is what we like to do. Mm-hmm. But, but, you know, I do want to point out that when you, that when, you, know, when you write about yourself, <laughs> there's more of that qualification. And also, when you wrote this piece um, about what you've learned in the first seven years, you know, I was very struck by one of the um, bullet points was, Build pockets of stillness into your life. Um, mm. You know, meditate, go for walks, ride your bike, going nowhere in particular. There is a creative purpose to daydreaming, even to boredom. And you you went on a little bit later. Most importantly, sleep. And you wrote, be as religious and disciplined about your sleep as you are about your work. And I bet people didn't see that coming. And I like it. I just want to say I like it. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Um, You know, what's funny is that I used to marvel for a long time why my best ideas, and I don't mean, by ideas, I I, I don't mean the ideas that sort of 
about what to write or, you know, all of that, but just sort of insights on the truths of, of my experience, of the human experience, whatever. Those ideas, the best of them came to me at the gym or on my bike or in the shower. And I used to have these elaborate theories that maybe, you know, there was something about the movement of the body and the water that magically sparked uh, <laughs> deeper consciousness. But, but I've really come to realize the kind of obvious thing, which is that these are simply the most unburdened spaces in my life, the mm -hmm. moments in which mm -hmm. I have the, the, the greatest uninterrupted intimacy with my own mind, with my own experience. And there's nothing magical, you know, at least not in the mystical sense about, about that. Um, it's just a kind of ordinary magic that's available to each of us just by default, if only we made that deliberate choice to, to make room for it and to invite it in. Mm. You, you wrote somewhere, presence is far more intricate and rewarding in art than productivity. Hmm. Hmm. I absolutely believe that, and I've come to believe it the, the hard way, I guess, which is that I, too, suffer from our kind of civilizational malady of, of busying ourselves with the feeling of being productive so we don't have to deal with the psychic pressure of, of feeling purposeful or, or to mask the absence of that feeling. Um, and I, you know, I think of George Eliot, who wrote that um, people may have in them some kind of vocation that's not quite clear to themselves, and they may seem idle and, and weak because they're really growing. And then she said something like, "Oh, we should be very patient with each other." Yeah. And I think you know we're, we're so impatient with ourselves, uh, let alone others, in, yeah. in this sort of quest to find why we're here, that, that productivity becomes an expression of that impatience and, and a filling of the gaps, because to sit with that uncertainty of, of that open-ended question is, I think, quite hard. And we all have different strategies of avoiding that. Yeah. And I, I also, <laughs> you may, this may sound like a non sequitur, but it didn't actually surprised me to learn that you is it that you you know that you start every day with a workout that is this right this was again somewhere are you a former recreational bodybuilder is that right <laughs> <laughs> i am yes okay but it doesn't surprise me because i feel like and i think this is part of the reason um brain pickings touches people because it's it's intellectual but it's not cerebral you know it's it's embodied knowledge activated Empowering mm. knowledge that dr Thank that draws you. you and that you uh, transmit, I think. Um, well, again, that's what I would like for myself. Mm -hmm. So, I'm very glad if that's what other people are getting out of it. Yeah, and I and I think I, even when I ask you, I mean, you tend to kind of, um, as much as you're in love with words and ideas, um, you mix sensory experiences in with right, with you know, uh, yeah. color and. It, Pairing, and I wouldn't, you know, not even just illustration, but kind of pairing words with images and music. Um, mm. Well, you know, we're we're kind of we're we're these embodied creatures, yeah. and to separate one part out from the rest, it's it's silly. And you know, 
this idea that we're all connected to each other or to the universe, it's not just this kind of, you know, froofy intellectual abstraction. I mean, to think that there are a billion atoms in my body and a billion atoms in your body that used to belong to Beethoven. You know, that's right. extraordinary to me. And yeah. that's a physical reality. Mm. Yeah, it's very affirming, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> mm. um, I'd like to talk about um, I'd like to talk about your perspective on journalism and news, which is you know, another mm. way, a very important way and consuming way we deal with information. Um, you often talk about one of the things you're looking for in content for brain pickings is something that contains both timeliness and timelessness. Um, mm. And, yeah, how do you think about... I also feel like journalism, like every sphere we... Every human sphere is in is in a moment of transformation. So, I mean, how, how do you... Th- tell me... Talk, and you've some, spoken some more about the problem of newsiness. So mm-hmm. I reflect with, with me on how you look at this thing we do called journalism and what works and what might be changing. Well, see, it's interesting that, I mean, you are very much a journalist, but in my mind, there it's almost like because what you do is so timeless and, and, and nourishes the most timeless parts of us, it was so interesting for me to just hear you say us as journalists, you know? Because okay. <laughs> I've come to see, I mean, journalism, I think journalism has all these concentric circles within it and sort of news journalism is vastly different from the kind of journalism that you do, and yet it's under this one umbrella. But I think we... And, and this is in part due to the rise of the internet. Yeah, we've come to conflate journalism with news, and so much of that culture deals with what is urgent right now and not what is important in the grand scheme of things. You know, and there's this sort of mm, time bias or or presentism bias that happens. Mm, presentism, which, I like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is right, you know, the, the the in part because of the way that the internet is structured. So when you think about anything from a Twitter feed or a Facebook feed to a a news website, everything floats. the The most recent floats to the top always, and it's always in reverse chronology. And I think that's conditioning us to believe rather falsely that the most recent is the most important, yeah. and that. The older matters less or, or, you know, just exists less to a point where we really have come to believe that things that are not on Google or on the news either never happened, (laughs) never existed or don't matter. But I would say probably 99% of the record of human thought is off the Internet and from the history of humanity, you know. And so I I think – and – I mean, it's this is such a complicated question, and we would need five hours to really get yeah. to the bottom of it. But there are elements of which there there are elements that I feel very strongly about, and and I think one of them is um, commercial media and the commercialization of of media, 
and the fact that, you know, the Internet is, its beauty is that it's a self-perfecting organism, right? Mm. But as, as long as it's an ad-supported medium, the motive will be to perfect commercial interest, to perfect the art of the listicle, the endless slideshow, the infinitely paginated article, and not to perfect the human spirit of the reader or the writer. And I think that journalism is moving further and further away from, you know, you take something like E.B. White's ideal, which, you know, he said that the role of the writer is to lift people up, not to lower them down. Mm -hmm. And so much of what passes for journalism today lowers, which is why I was so struck to to hear you call what you do journalism, because it actually elevates, you know, how is that journalism today? Um, yeah, but, so, you know, I think that the internet, um, there's been this unfortunate convergence of the internet and the kind of 24-7 cycle, and it's it's changed the effect, I mean, I think this is a real challenge that journalism has to take up of, you know, it used to be possible for, uh, you know, Upton Sinclair or Sinclair Lewis, I get them confused, to, you know, do some huge piece of expose of something shocking and terrible, and that would mobilize people. But when people are bombarded by the shocking um, mm. And they start to internalize it as the norm. It actually shuts them down. Um, oh, absolutely. I mean, you you wrote something in the New York Times that I I just thought this was a very, uh, you know, a good great sentence. A powerful story transcends the shock value to help the reader reconcile the cognitive dissonance of controversy and emerge closer to the truth, if only just a little bit. I don't think that's an aspiration. Um, that's in the DNA of the profession. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I actually think it's in the DNA of the profession, but I think the business side of journalism has taken over the mm. journalistic ethos. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, to me, there is so much goodness in the world. And, of course, we just we just kind of have to show up for it and refuse to leave. Yeah, right. Yes, people sometimes do horrible things. And we can speculate about why they do them until we run out of words and run out of sanity, but evil only prevails when we mistake it for the norm. And yet the currency of news journalism is making it the norm. Yeah, unwittingly. And, you know, you in the literary jukebox, you quoted <laughs> Anne Lamott. Uh, talk, she's actually talking about something Emily Dickinson said, that mm -hmm. hope inspires the good to reveal itself. Mm. Um, and I, you know, to me, that speaks to the cultivation of hope as a way to move through the world, which you talked about a little while ago, meeting, meeting the information that comes our way with something robust and complicated called hope. What did you say? Hope with its critical faculties intact. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and and I think Brené Brown has written about this, and I think she yeah. talked about this on the show, about hope being a function of struggle. Yeah. Um, and I think the thing is, I don't think hope is uh, baked in 
faculty that you're born either with or without. It's a conditioned response. So we can respond to horrible events that do happen in the world, and we do need to actually attend to and try to understand and help. We can respond to those with hope, and we can respond to them with resignation. And I, I think you're absolutely right that the way a lot of it is being written about is geared toward producing resignation rather than hope. And I have enough faith in the human spirit to, to think that that's an inadvertent effect, but it's a palpable one. And I'm very interested in what we can do to counter it, which brings us back to this notion of the, the sort of reparenting, because I think when we have a foundation of wisdom and of, of assuredness, I guess, that comes from people who have lived long ago and have gone through horrible things and through beautiful things, that then we somehow are better able to rest in that and know that despite what happens, yes, we should show up and think critically about it, but despite it all, at the base level, there is this hope that is the human experience. Um, you know, when you said a minute ago that the that the internet is a self-perfecting organism and that you, you use some language about um, there are there are values and 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 details built into the way we've designed that 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 work against uh, the perfection of the human spirit as the as mm. the as a primary drive but do you have hope and confidence um in the internet in our technology um as a place where i mean perfection is a big word but where 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 the human spirit um can be cultivated and deepened. That's not language people often use when they're speaking of our lives with technology. Well, the thing to keep in mind is that this is such a young medium. Yeah. You know? Yeah. We have not even had a full generation live and die with it. And uh, I think like any sort of pioneer and any territory to which we bring the pioneer spirit is bound to have both the good and the evil. And we're not going to know how it turns out until much, much, much later. But in the meantime, the decisions we make, the microscopic decisions that we make daily, shape it. And I, I'm not... F- so foolish as to make predictions, but I can tell you my hope, which is that I I do think that people will come to rebel against the things that just don't work for us spiritually, intellectually, creatively. Mm -hmm. Things like, you know, the endless ad-infested atrocities, things like the extreme negativity bias of the news. Um, things like the the anonymity from behind which people do awful things to one another online. You know, there, there are elements that at one point we're just going to draw a line. And, and we're seeing this to some degree. And I, I think um, the 
younger generations, and I don't mean this by age, but I mean people who are sort of more recently coming onto the the scene of right. the internet, um, are more willing to, for example, pay for ad-free versions of publications or to um, limit what they engage with and you know, maybe subscribe to the New York Times and, and, and recognize that actually it takes time and thought and effort and resources to produce a publication that is nourishing as opposed to a, a cat listicle mm-hmm. and, and to make decisions according to how something makes you feel in the end and what kind of contribution it's making to, you know, to use Vannevar Bush's word again, the common record. Mm-hmm. And, and I, 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 I do I agree with you that that insight that we have to hold is that we feel like the internet has taken over our lives, but it is so young. It's it's in its mm. infancy, and that but but it it's I mean it is going to be for your generation and and the generations coming up now who who aren't uh, you know who aren't on this frontier that they feel like they have to tackle. But who have some who have who are kind of born and raised with some kind of organic instinct about shaping it that that haven't mm-hmm. been there I think for the first the first uh, guinea pigs <laughs> which is yeah, what yeah you know I was listening to an interview with um, Jimmy Wales the founder of Wikipedia mm-hmm. and he said that um, people contribute to Wikipedia for free because they want to do something useful with their time. And yes, I agree. I think people hunger to do something useful with their time in our age of kind of uselessness, you know, time uselessly spent, but also something ennobling with their time. This can't quite be quantified. You know, there's no utilitarian value to it the way that there is with usefulness. But I I deeply believe that people want to be good, that... More than that, we want to be better, to grow, to to ennoble our souls. And I I have hope for this medium with that lens. Mm. You know, I was so intrigued. You sent out um, at the end of the year, at the end of 2014, the annual, the best brain pickings articles of the year, best meaning those most read and shared most read and shared by by others, as well as those you took the most pleasure in writing. And I'm just going to read. It's kind of a long list, but I want to read it. We might not have time for it on the whole show. But I think it's really a fascinating list. Um, an Antidote to the Age of Anxiety, Alan Watts on Happiness and How to Live with Presence, Fixed versus Growth, The Two Basic Mindsets that Shape Our Lives, How to Criticize with Kindness, this philosopher Daniel Dennett, I don't read all of them. I'll skip. How to Be Alone, an Antidote to One of the Central Anxieties and Greatest Paradox of Our Time, The Hidden Brain, How Ocean Currents Explain Our Unconscious Social Biases. You can hear I printed all this out, so I've got all the pictures. (laughs) I'm looking at The Benjamin Franklin Effect, The Surprising Psychology of How to Handle Haters, The Shortness of Life, Seneca on Busyness, and The Art of Living Wide Rather Than Living Long. Anyway... There's definitely um, there's there's such a deep theme, a thread that runs through all of that, and it's it, you know, 
if if somebody had heard about brain pickings but not read it, I think they and you. I mean, you do. You you. you there's a lot of big ideas, but but this, this recurring thread is how we bring all bring big ideas and aspirational ideas and also real kind of spiritual and social technologies to become whole integrated evolving people i just i want to ask you if um if that list from 2014 is different from the list you know 9 years ago i mean have those mm-hmm. themes deepened have you what what I, or, you know what what have you seen um Oh, absolutely. The they're, they're radically different. You know, I I am radically different. Yeah. I was a spiritual embryo nine years ago. <laughs> right. Well, you were 21. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, and I wasn't also, I wasn't reading so much, at least l- literature, you know, and uh, literature, I'm sort of a little antsy about using that umbrella umbrella term, but by and large, I would say the the greatest record of human thought is in the written word and all these ideas and how to live well and what it means to live a good life and a meaningful life and all that it's it's these quite questions are so ancient and they've been asked over and over and over in the body of literature and i'm only just you know dipping my toes into it and i have been only in the last few years um I, I would also say, because it's brain pickings is just such a subjective, private sort of one woman labor of love. It's so aligned with the events of my own life, of your and own the things evolution. that I struggle yeah. with. Yeah, yeah, the evolution, but also the struggle and the aspiration and the questions that I'm constantly trying to answer for myself. That. Mm-hmm. That list is really the list of my year. What were the things that I was preoccupied with, you know, this past year? And it's been, I I can't recall off the top of my head what the previous year's most sort of my favorite pieces were, but I would imagine they were pretty different. There, There is a very spiritual aspect to that, you know, and the word spiritual being expansively, you know, understood. Um, and I sense that that's grown in you as well. Mm, mm. I don't know. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, this goes back to the whole thing about growing up in Bulgaria and the atheism and the extreme resistance, not just to religion, but to spirituality, to not seeing the nuance and what that can mean. And um, I think... You know, we never see the world exactly as it is. We we see it as we hope it will be or we fear it might be. And we <laughs> spend our lives going through a sort of modified stages of grief about that realization. And we deny it and then we argue with it and we despair over it. But eventually, and, and this is my belief, we come to see it not as despairing but as vitalizing. We, we never see the world exactly as it is because we are how the world is. You know, was, yeah. was it, I think it was William James who said, my experience is what I agree to attend to and only those things which I notice shape my mind. And so in choosing how we are in the world, we shape our experience of that world, our contribution to it. We shape 
our world, our inner world, our outer world, which is really the only one we'll ever know. And to me, that's the substance of the spiritual journey. And, and, and that's not an exasperating idea, but an infinitely emboldening one. And it's taken me many years to, to, to come to that without, without resistance. And I think that the gift of curation in, in you is in part about the fact that you're discerning, uh, you know, your trajectory is very responsive to uh, and also wise about the trajectory that the culture itself is on or that many people in the culture are on. I don't know if I'm mm. saying that very well, but I guess you know. I bet. I mean, I I have to ask. I mean, I I would assume that you would sense that. Yes, your activity is solitary in some sense. I mean, so is mine. I'm sitting here in a room by myself, right? <laughs> but <laughs> we're both sending our our solitary work out. Um, but I think you, you, your inner work and your work of reading and writing, curating is also very relational. You're 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 always in relationship with ideas and materials, but also the culture, and not just you know, and not just what people are reading, but what they might be longing to read or to know without knowing it. Hmm. See, it's interesting because I actually feel like I am completely out of the loop when it comes to, <laughs> I guess it's a semantic thing, like what is culture? I, I guess the cultural commons really. Well, I just mean it, people. I'm just, I'm just <laughs> talking about other people. <laughs> but I see that's funny because I yeah. think it actually tells us something about the fact that What's being pervaded by the news media establishment as culture is mm-hmm. not really what people are longing for. If yeah. if we define culture as the things that people think about and long to know, yeah. versus current events, which I'm completely completely out of touch with. Right. But you know, what's interesting to me, and I, I was thinking about that a couple of weeks ago, that I started brain pickings in 2006. Uh, in the city where Benjamin Franklin built America's first subscription library a long, long time ago. And now Brain Pickens is archived by the Library of Congress. But, but what does it mean? Like, what, is it, what does that mean? First of all, what is a library? And, and Brain Pickens is a library within a library, but it's also my personal private library. Hmm. And it's, it's just a very different one. And, and to your point about the solitary shared experience, in this library, there are new walls or, or beautiful vaulted ceilings, but there is instead a reading room of millions, yeah. yet perpetually quiet and, and experienced in the privacy of one's own terminal. For me as a writer and for my readers as readers, and it's this sort of strange and wonderful feeling that you captured that, that it is very solitary, but it's also... There's an element of communion in it. That, yeah. and, and this brings us back to the hopefulness aspect of where the Internet is going. And I think, I, I hope that people will continue to seek those experiences out that bring them at once closer to themselves and closer to each other and will weed out the ones that feed 
divisiveness and, and, and inner divisiveness and, and all these sort of more toxic things. You know, while I was um, getting ready to interview you, this um, Seth Godin's blog came across my desk, this, you know, my, into my inbox, and um, I just, I want to read it because it just seems so resonant with... I love his Oh, uh, yeah, mind, and I do so too. Please do. And, you know, just, and it's always great, but sometimes it's just so amazingly wise. Um, so... Um, give the people what they want. Giving, giving the people what they want isn't nearly as powerful as teaching people what they need. There's always a shortcut available, a way to be a little more ironic, cheaper, more instantly understandable. There's the chance to play into our desire to be entertained and distracted regardless of the cost. Most of all, there's the temptation to encourage people to be selfish, afraid, and angry. Or you can dig in, take your time, and invest in a process that helps people see what they truly need. When we change our culture in this direction, we're doing work that's worth sharing. But it's slow going. If it were easy, it would have happened already. It's easy Mm. to start a riot. Difficult to create a story that keeps people from rioting. Don't say, I wish people wanted this. Sure, it's great if the market already wants what you make. Instead, imagine what would happen if you could teach them why they should. And I and I mm. I read that because I feel like it's a it's the in, it's the instinct that you acted on at twenty one <laughs> and that you that you've kept. Oh, I would really hope so. Pushing forward, so. it's so he has a way of capturing things so succinctly and mm-hmm. so poetically. Mm-hmm. I, I love that. Mm-hmm. But you know, that's always been the case in yeah in. We we orient ourselves in in the darkness of the unknown by by grasping kind of blindly for familiar points of reference, and we seek to construct out of them a kind of compass out of similarities and contrasts relative to our familiar world and our existing knowledge. And I think it's especially true about such nebulous subjects as art or philosophy or, or really how to think where there is no true north. So we seek tangibles like yeah. the market to orient ourselves in this maze of merit and meaning. And it takes something. And, and But I, I really believe most people, all people, have that capacity in them to do what he says, basically, to, you know, not orient ourselves to what's been done, what's been thought, to, to the market, to the familiar, and, and try ever so gently to expand our private locus of the possible. Yeah. And, you know, Maria, you're, you're 30, which is very young, although you are an old soul and you are East Central European by birth. Um but I wonder. So I don't. I don't. Exp- and I don't. And I don't like asking people to speak for their generation. But I. I do wonder if you feel like your generation and the new generations um, may may be more um, open and to and powerful with that possibility, or equipped in some way to be present to that possibility. Again, I can only express my hope and yeah. not my prediction, right. but especially because I, I feel like I'm profoundly underqualified um, to speak to that, in part because most of my friends are dead people. 
uh, people, you know, the authors and artists and so forth. Yeah. Are long gone, but my real life friends, uh, the majority of them are significantly older than I am. My partner is significantly older than I am. My youngest friend is six years older than I am. <laughs> okay. Uh, so I, I don't. I don't feel. I feel so. I feel like I'm such right. a profound failure of my of representing my generation. <laughs> All right. You are. Here you are. Here you are. Um. How do you, how, if I ask you how you measure success, like in any given day, what comes to mind? Hmm. Well, once again, it's, I am going to side with Thoreau. And uh, he said something like, if the day and night are such that you greet them with joy and life emits a fragrance like flowers, uh, it's more elastic and more starry and more immortal, that is your success. And for me, that's pretty much it. Waking up and being excited and and curiously restless to face the day ahead and and being very present with that day and then going to bed feeling like it actually happened, that that the day was (laughs) lived. I mean, there's nothing more than that, really. And in terms of um, the effect that you can gauge externally from reactions that come to you I mean I I do hear you that you don't you don't measure success on numbers or or, or even it's really um, you are internally motivated but um, what feels like success to you uh, when it comes to you from outside mm. well you know we are such and I am not I'm far from being on this sort of high moral horse of oh you know I, I don't you know, I'm immune to these metrics that we all yeah. uh, respond to. I think we're such Pavlovian creatures, and we yeah. thrive on constant positive reinforcement. And we live in an era where the tangibles of that have become very readily available. Um, and you can see things like, you know, Facebook likes and retweets, and right, it is right. so tempting and so easy because they're concrete. They're they're concrete substitutes for things that are inherently nebulous. It's so easy to sort of hang your sanity and your sense of worth on them. And I have certainly suffered from that earlier on when these metrics first became available, and they're right there. I mean, they are right there. And I think it takes a real discipline just to not hang the stability of your soul on them, you know? Mm. And so one thing that I've done for myself, which is probably the most sanity-inducing thing that I've done in the last few years is to never look at statistics and and such sort of externalities. But I do read all the the emails that and, and letters. I also get like mail letters from readers, yeah. and to me, that's that really is the the metric of. what we mean to one another and how we connect and that aspect of communion. I mean, I heard from a woman yesterday who said that uh, she's been living with stage four cancer for 26 years. And she she goes and tells me this remarkably moving, it's not a story, it's her life, you know, and and it makes you go, wow, these are the things that matter. And, and, And her, she was writing very, very generously to say that she was finding nourishment in all these thinkers and these ideas. And that, that to me, is success, the feeling that 
somebody more enlightened and, and living a harder life and in some ways a more beautiful life than I am resonates, you know? That's, yeah. that, that's what it is. Yeah. You, um, there's some place you wrote, uh, you know, the question that I'm always pursuing in a big way is, you know, what does it mean to be human? And you wrote somewhere, um, we are a collage of our interests, our influences, our inspirations, all the fragmentary impressions we've collected by being alive and awake to the world. Who we are is simply a finely curated catalog of those, which which brings the word curation, which I understand you're not as fond of anymore, into this into the answer of what it means to be human, that we curate our lives. But I, I mean, I want to ask you to reflect on that, but also, uh, again, you're, you know, you're young, but you've traveled a long way between Bulgarian here and starting brain pickings at 29 and now at 30. I mean, how do you think your sense of what it means to be human, that grand question, has evolved? How would you start to talk about that? Hmm. I think much of it has shifted from an understanding that's based on concreteness to an understanding that's based on relational things um, that this notion of not just who we are but who we are in relation to our past selves the people around us the culture that we came from the culture that we live in all the different lives we've had and for me certainly I feel like I've had all these different lives you know mm -hmm. um I, I grew up in a country that is pretty much the exact opposite of my life right now. I, I grew up having <laughs> yeah. nothing, and and you know, and then then I sort of clawed my way up and out, and uh, and now I I live in New York City, and I am able to afford my own life and and live my own life without worrying about things that I worried about for for many 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 years, and. It's so strange how we're able to carry forward this mystery of personal identity, even when our present selves are so different from our future selves, and I, and and from our past selves, yeah. most of all. And I think a lot about this question of what is a person. I mean, how am I the same person? As my childhood self, and yeah. sure we share the same body, but even that body is so different. It's it's unrecognizably different, and our, our lives are so different. Our, our ideas and ideals are so different. And to me, this question of what it means to be human is always a question of elasticity of being. It's never hmm. a, an arrival point, you know. Yeah. But I, I want to also go back to this. The, you mentioned the, the fragments, this notion of the fragments. Um, and yes, I, I do agree that we're kind of a mashup of, of what we let into our lives. But at the same time, we, we live in a culture of dividedness. And I, I don't mean just people being divided amongst themselves, but people being divided within themselves. Mm. And our language reflects that, and language matters enormously in not just conveying, but also shaping our beliefs. And even the, the language of 
secular spirituality reflects that. I mean, consider the the things that we encourage when we talk about a full life, wholeheartedness and mindfulness. Well, being wholehearted only works if your heart is your whole self. And being mindful only matters if your mind is all you are. And, and of course, right. we're so much right. more expansive than our hearts and our minds and our perfect abs or whatever fragment <laughs> right. we fixate on, you know? And But yet we, we compartmentalize our experience in that way. We divide it into these fragments to be sort of divided and conquered. And I was reading recently one of Parker Palmer's books, and he talks so courageously about the soul. He uses this word soul, yes. to, to which we have such resistance, by the way. We almost have an allergy to the soul as a culture. Yeah. And there are so few words that elicit more cynicism, and yet that, that, that are so full of meaning when we actually contemplate it. And I was reading this morning, actually, for a piece that I'm writing for tomorrow, um, Virginia Woolf's diary, which is not a journal, but a diary. <laughs> a diary, yeah. um, <laughs> And she says, one can't write directly about the soul. Looked at, it vanishes. And she talks about the slipperiness of the soul and the mm. delicacy and complexity of the soul. But I think the fullest people, the, the people most whole and most alive, are always those unafraid and unashamed of the soul. And the soul is never an assemblage of fragments, and it always is. Mm. Oh, Maria, that's it's been wonderful talking to you. That's a wonderful. Those are wonderful last words. Um, thank you so much, and thank you so much for what you do and for what you put into the world. Uh, well, I, 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 I decided not to have this in the interview, but I do also feel like um, you know, I work in media and you work in media. And um, there is also, it, it also drives us back to this mystery of human connection because I feel like there's a way for the two of us in particular that we both appreciated each other's work from afar and were attentive to it, but there was something about just meeting each other in person um, mm. that intensified that Oh, absolutely. Connection and with it's one's... the realness, isn't it? It's yes. this moving yes. and back to this notion of embodied creatures. Yeah. we stop being an abstraction to each other and yeah. became a being. Yeah. Also, I'm just mm. delighted to be in contact with you and um, we'll let you know what's Me happening too. with this. And thank you so much for making the time. Thank you. Thank okay. you. And stay warm. Yeah, oh, I will. Don't <laughs> worry. We know how to do that here. <laughs> <laughs> Bye, Krista. Bye-bye. <laughs>